wonderful. Well, look, it uh, is really special to be here tonight uh, at Oikos Church. Uh, it's always difficult when someone introduces you as the class clown, as Vindo did, because they sort of, it's like people expect Jerry Seinfeld up here or something. Uh, and instead, all you've got is a couple of knock-knock jokes and a pun or two much later on. But uh, look, it's great to be here. If I do look familiar to any of you, it's because I've been here before. So I believe this is your eighth service, number eight. Uh, I was here actually for the first and so I was checking Facebook that week and there was about 36 notifications reminding me that Oikos was starting. And so having already missed the opening of Optus Stadium and uh, Circular Elizabeth Key there, I thought I want to miss the party to end all parties here at Oikos Church. And so I got, um, sadly, I was about 10 minutes late and so I was ushered into the overflow room. And I'm thinking, well, wow, these guys are, this is pretty impressive. They have an overflow room with a, a video link. And I didn't bring my Malion College lanyard. I was hoping to maybe sneak in and sit next to Vindo. But in, in humility, I sat there in the overflow room. And uh, I was just praying that night, Vindo, he's up the front. He's preaching a storm. He's talking about the prodigal son. He's announcing uh, his impending, you know, the birth of a future child. I think it was unplanned, but uh, he was sharing that as well. <laughs> I was talking talking to his wife afterwards. That wasn't uh, necessarily part of the script. But uh, I'm just standing there pray, uh, praying to the Lord. I said, Lord, can you uh, please make this a short sermon? Because sort of three meters behind me is like a spit roast and I'm starving. So those poor people in the overflow room <laughs> had to sit through. It was a great message, but uh, i tell you what, the food afterwards was uh, delightful too. But on a more serious note, it is just really encouraging uh, to be here and to see um, that the Lord is raising up new communities, new gospel-centered uh, churches in this city to promote uh, the good news and to praise Jesus. And uh, it is a delight to be part of that. Let's get into the Bible uh, tonight and just see what it might be saying uh, to us. We're looking, we're sort of starting at the beginning of the end and looking at the book uh, of Revelation. And this is a book that uh, it can divide people, for those who've explored it a little bit already. You know, for some of us, it does include elements that can seem rather disturbing. And so there's some weird things in there like beasts and dragons, and so we kind of steer well clear from it. Uh, at another extreme, there are people who perhaps make too much of the book, and they center their whole Christian faith on it, uh, reading all sorts of, you know, interpretations and applications coming out of it as it... Um, relates to the news and current affairs and things like that. And so sadly, a lot of us, uh, we avoid it because of these extremes. You know, but to avoid revelation because of some of the uh, difficulties, and that, that's a real tragedy because uh, it misses out, it misses out on its promised blessings for those who read it and take it uh, to heart. Revelation, in terms of um, just some background for it, the type of literature it is, is apocalyptic. And I'm going to try and make that the most syllables I use tonight is mentioning that it's apocalyptic in its genre. Uh, and that's simply a Greek word meaning uh, to reveal or to uncover. So it's really a revealing of heavenly realities as they relate to what's going on here with us, his church on planet Earth. Firstly, it's a letter to Christians sort of encouraging them in the midst of tremendous persecution, you know, to keep going, to keep being faithful to Jesus in light of that oppo opposition which surrounds them. 
And so what we're going to focus on in chapters uh, 2 and 3, particularly just at the start of 2 there, we find uh, some very special mail. And some of us might think, what would it be like, what would it be like if Jesus was to write me a letter or us a letter? What would it be like if the glorified, the risen Jesus, if he was to write his church a letter? You know, what might, what might he say? How might he commend us? Uh, how might he, um, what would he warn us against? And so a very good start to answer that question. Um, yeah, that's why these letters are there. They're written certainly to a certain audience in uh, the area of Asia Minor, you know, those seven churches there. Uh, but they were always intended to be used for a wider audience as well. And that comes right down to us even today here in Perth uh, at Oikos Church. They're written by a guy called uh, John. He's an apostle, which is, I guess, a fancy word for saying he is sort of the, one of the artists formerly known as the disciples. That's um, basically what that is. Uh, Paul is added in as well, but that's uh, so it's written by John the Apostle. And church tradition says that John was he was the only disciple not to be killed or martyred, and not through lack of effort or trying. The reason was he, they just couldn't kill the guy, and so they tried to burn him in a vat of boiling oil. And uh, whether the thermostat was broken that day or just something supernatural was taking place, maybe all of the above, but he could not, they could not kill him. So what they do is they exile him uh, to the Isle of Patmos, just off the coast of Turkey. And uh, it's there. He's kind of old. He's probably a bit disfigured. Uh, he's without fellowship and community. But nonetheless, the Lord uses him for one last charge, one last message uh, to give to the church. And I think that's really awesome that the Lord might use uh, someone like John, even in his swan song, even in his twilight years, that the Lord might say, despite his physical problems, despite his old age, I'm going to use you to do something mighty. So he's exiled. It's a bit like Tom Hanks in that movie Castaway, only there's no volleyball to keep him company. He's just on his uh, Pat Malone there. And so we're not going to explore every letter tonight, but really just focus on that letter to the, the first church, uh, the Church of Ephesus. Otherwise, we'll be here till Tuesday, <laughs> which I'm okay with, but Windows said, no, Monday midday at the latest is all what we can do. So it starts off, let me just read that some of that text again. I'll break it down for us. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so some interpretation, these sort of verses are interpreted in the previous chapter, the first chapter. So lampstands, you're thinking, what on earth is that? That simply means the church. They are to reflect his light to the world. That's our mandate. And the stars are really the angels or the messengers of each church. And so then Jesus goes on to say, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. And so beginning with some encouragement uh, to the church at Ephesus, it's really kind of like high five uh, time here. You know, Jesus is giving a high five to these guys, saying some of your, some of the things you value and are doing, they are worthy. I tell you what, they are worthy of the utter commendation. The Ephesians, they're, they're working real hard. Uh, they're not giving in. 
They're, they love the sheep. They're caring for the sheep so much so that when, there's wol- when wolves come in to take away the sheep, uh, they get defensive. Uh, they're not going to tolerate any old wolf. And they're prioritizing the Bible. They have a love of the scripture and they're probably memorizing verses. You know, they've probably got some Tim Keller on their shelves. They're probably very well read. And uh, they're reading the right books. You know, this is, a, this is a church that's probably sending out missionaries. It's raising up pastors. They've got a very efficient ushering system and rostering system. So I think Vin, Vindo's coveting this church as well. And they've got this dogged determination, this dogged determination to just keep on keeping on and to do it for Jesus' name. So they're doing it for him. They're not doing it for their own glory. They're doing it for his name. And let me just say by way of some more background, and it's hard to jump into Revelation too much without a bunch of background, sadly, but or to it probably uh, in many ways a good thing. But you know, Ephesus, it ain't easy being a believer in Ephesus. It is not easy being a believer in Ephesus. Ephesus is kind of like this giant port city. There's 200,000 people there. You've got all these uh, trade routes going through Ephesus. In terms of uh, other religions, you've got about 50 gods and goddesses in the city of Ephesus. So it's this real pagan stronghold, the largest of which was called Artemis. And there was a huge big statue of her. One of the seven uh, wonders of the world was there in Ephesus. Uh, There's a lot of prostitution rampant. There was a huge library in Ephesus, a very intellectual place. But that library, apparently church history, or rather historians, will say that library had a passageway that went through to a brothel. And so you can imagine every guy in town owned a library card. Everyone was in a book club and uh, everyone's (laughs) taking their books back on time because the library and the brothel are kind of synonymous uh, with one another. And that's a little bit uh, about Ephesus. The Roman emperor Domitian, he's in charge there. And uh, yeah, if you do not worship him, you don't worship the emperor. This is in the AD 90s, remember. Uh, If you don't worship him, you are liable to be killed. And so all these believers in Ephesus, you know, they're all Gentiles. They're non-Jewish. They don't have access to the synagogue. And so many of their comrades, their friends have been martyred. And uh, for those who want to keep worshipping Jesus, it's a very, very risky proposition. I've seen a, a coin of Domitian. I've seen the, the bust of his head, and he doesn't, he's not aesthetically pleasing enough for me to think he's worthy of worship, but nonetheless, that was um, how it worked back then for Domitian. It's an intellectual centre of prestige. You've got, um, it's a centre of trade. It's a finance centre. And so again, yeah, being a believer in Ephesus... Uh, is not, it's not an easy route. You've got all these false religions. Uh, you've got all this temptation. You know, you've got to have an accountability partner just to go to the library. And you've got all, these, uh, you've got, you've got all this opposition uh, which could result in death as well, death threats. And so you think, you know, what on earth could come, uh, what on earth good could come from Ephesus? And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, you know, he spends three years in Ephesus. And so three years is a long time for a guy like Paul to serve in a city like that. Because you remember Paul, his battle charge or his commission is to take the good news to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And so he's waking up every day thinking, man, I've got to get on the treadmill, then I've got to get to work. Because the Lord Jesus has given me a mighty task to steward. 
And so you'd think he'd be running around like a chicken with its head cut off, Paul, going here, there and everywhere. And sometimes that's true. Uh, but he spends three years investing in this city of Ephesus. And I think that's because he's kind of saying, this is such a city of influence. If the gospel can go forth here, it can really go forth anywhere. It can, it can spread and grow. Uh, it's all hustle and bustle there in Ephesus. There are nine New Testament books that sort of major on or touch on Ephesus, one of the most influential cities uh, in the world of that time. It's hard soil there in Ephesus, but I tell you, it's bearing some great fruit. Hard soil, but great fruit. And they're raising up, it looks like, and you can tell through the scriptures, this generation and generation of Christian leaders. So there's actually a good argument that because the letter starts to the church at Ephesus, that a lot of those, um, the other churches, they're kind of on the mail route, and a lot of those other churches have probably been planted uh, by that church at Ephesus. And so just um, maybe as a little tangent or hobby horse, if I can take one hobby horse out of the stable and uh, share that with you, it doesn't relate so much you know, to the text, but I just want to encourage you, I think that Perth, is not too dissimilar. It's not too different uh, to Ephesus. And sometimes people from the East, which is kind of me and Vindo, I'll confess, but people from the East can pay us out and say, you know, Perth, you're in the middle of nowhere. It's this world's most isolated city. But I would say, you know, if you're in Sydney or Melbourne and you're looking East across the Pacific Ocean, really, you're just seeing New Zealand. <laughs> and no disrespect... <laughs> No disrespect to any Kiwis in the audience, but New Zealand, it's mostly full of sheep. And not even like the Christian sheep, just literally sheep, sheep, you know, the animal variety that we would call in English sheep. And so there's not much going on, but you go to Perth, I tell you what, and you go to Cottesloe Beach, you look out uh, west, what do you see? Well, you see Rottnest Island, there's not much happening there either, but you go beyond that to the distant shores, I tell you what, Perth is a launching pad to reach the nations because you've got, you've got India there, the world's largest Hindu country. You've got Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country. You've got Thailand, the world's largest Buddhist country. And, you know, church uh, strategists, mission strategists, they say there's this region there, the 1040 windows, talking lines of latitude and longitude, and it's the home to the most spiritually impoverished people uh, in the world. And so I hope just as Paul's waking up busy and getting on the treadmill and thinking, how can I help fulfill the Great Commission? I hope likewise, yeah, here at Oikos Church, you're thinking, you know, God has placed me in, a, in this city for a time such as this. And through Perth and through this church, we want to reach the world. And in a place like India, I mean, every two years, they're birthing another Perth anyway. You know, it's just exploding. It's multiplying. And so we get all like built up to like try and reach Perth, and it's great. Let's reach our neighbours, let's go local, but let's also go global as well. My ministry, it's really working with international students, a lot of it, and uh, students from all around the world, they come to Perth, just like they all came to Ephesus, and then if we can lead them to the Lord, they're the ones who can plant churches uh, back home. So let me put my hobby horse back in the stable. Tangent is complete. And let's download the rest of the message there. So in the midst of all this uh, incredibly difficult but surprisingly fruitful situation in Ephesus, you know, God is really commending the church there. He's saying, you know, you guys, in the midst of what is a very difficult spiritual climate, 
you guys are a real hard-working, lean, mean, gospel-fighting machine. You love truth, you love scripture, and I want to commend you for that. This is a key strategic center, and you guys are doing an awesome job. I tell you what, uh, truth proclaiming, proclaiming truth, it's not always sexy. It's not always going to yield a girlfriend or a boyfriend, but uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, uh, I was meeting with a, an imam, a Muslim imam, um, and if there are any Muslims in the crowd tonight, I just want to say we love having you here at Oikos Church. This isn't an us and them thing, but just um, just being open about, yeah, I met a, a Muslim imam. And imam is really like a leader of that faith, and they're kind of very intellectual. They've read the whole Quran. And so we met up to, uh, to, to talk about what, where, what the Christian faith is about, where Islam is coming from. And it wasn't, for me, you know, as I've seen it, it wasn't just enough to love on that guy or to buy him coffee, or to compliment his tie, or to ask him some good, deep, relational questions. He was talking about the resurrection of Jesus being a farce, or not a hoax is probably a better word. And so I was just sitting there, I was thankful to the Lord for some of the books I'd read, and some of the Christians who had taught me scripture and truth, such that when the time was right, in warmth and love and with tact, I could share a bit about why the resurrection was true. And uh, we live in a world where, where truth might not always be sexy, but as Christians, we need to be equipped to proclaim the truth, yeah. just like the Ephesians are. Yeah. Even just a few weeks ago, another just real quick example, but I've had to uh, message all of the students involved in Power to Change, probably 60, 80 students, as a, a Christian cult makes its way through university. And they use Facebook to contact all of our members and friends of friends. And I'm not just going to sit back and let the sheep be taken out like that. Um, so I you know, step in and I meet the guy and I pro- work to proclaim some truth. I'm not saying I'm always the best at it, I always get the words right, but truth is important. And so I hope here at uh, Oikos Church you might take some encouragement here Uh, from a letter to the church at Ephesus, and that you guys might cultivate a reputation for knowing God really well and uh, loving Him with your mind, calling out untruth or error where you see it. And there's going to have to be some specialists for that. That might not always be Vindo, but I'm sure it's Vindo raising up the flock to do likewise. Uh, So helping people understand what is a biblical, a healthy, a balanced worldview, um, that is just so important. It's so important. Uh, Guys, Oikos Church, I think that that verse, uh, God knows your deeds. Jesus, the King, he knows your deeds. I think some of you need to be reminded of that. There are people in this room, you've done an incredible job to get this church sort of up and running. And you've got full-time jobs. And just like the church at Ephesus, where they were hardworking, they were persevering, they were plodding on, they were hanging in there. Um, some of that is, is, is you guys as well. There's been times when, you know, maybe you're tempted to go to the beach during, instead of going to church, or just the, even the worship team and all the hours you put into getting worship happening. There's a whole bunch of hard work that you've done. Uh, and I, I just want to tell you, God knows that. He knows your deeds. He's saying, I notice that. I notice that. Verse 4 of the, uh, the text, so far so good. The Ephesian church really does look to be uh, a phenomenal body of believers. Yet I hold this against you, the word says. Real change of tone there. 
And where the first few verses have a whole bunch of positive things, here there's only listed one criticism. Yet it's a pivotal one. They had abandoned their first love for Jesus. They had been rescued from death for an ever-growing and personal relationship with God, but they had moved away from that to focus instead on their activities, their Christian activities, spotting and shooting down errors in others around them. That they had forsaken their first love, you know, that suggests that it's not like they have lost it completely. It's more a love left rather than a love lost. And so it's a light that is instead shining dimly. It's like one of those Perth parks. You go out there to do some exercise at 8pm. It's, it's winter and there's this little crappy dim light that, you know, Stirling Council have put up and you're like, oh, I can't tell. I'm not running around there without getting mugged kind of thing. That's the sort of light uh, that we're talking about. Jesus is not saying that activity is bad, but just that that good Christian things can easily be isolated from a loving, relating lovingly with Jesus, resulting in them really existing kind of for their own sake and they become an empty vessel rather than expressions of a love relationship. And so the good things in life, they often become the enemy of the best thing. And the best thing is intimacy with Jesus. The best thing is intimacy with Jesus. For some of us, you know, our Christianity, it can be based on a group of friends. We're sort of primarily just running with that group of friends. They're our crew, they're our gang. We run with them, we tag with them. And you know what? They do church stuff. And we identify with them. We sort of, we we run along with them. Or some of us, primarily our Christianity is based on an influential Christian leader or blogger or podcaster and it's like they're the man we sort of or woman and we sort of follow uh, them our faith is mediated through their charismatic influence or for some of us you know the mission or the cause that becomes the primary thing in our christian faith it might be you know we do scripture union camps or we lead this group at at oikos a bible study Um, And that's the one that the Ephesians um, are kind of struggling with here. The mission has become the driving force. Uh, I work in full-time ministry, so I just know working with power to change, um, there's often times when that's really my temptation, is you become so, uh, so caught up in telling people about Jesus, you forget to, to relate to Jesus and develop intimacy with Jesus. Uh, But those things, they're not going to help you go the distance because, you know, that group of friends you're running with, they might kind of fall away or move away. Or that charismatic teacher, he might um, not be around for too much longer or even worse might happen to him. Uh, You might get tired, worn out, disillusioned uh, with the the mission itself or the the drive that you're on. It just, it struggles. So unless a person's Christian faith is resting primarily uh, on that on their own real and genuine love relationship with Jesus, which they have with God, which they have through Jesus, then it's simply uh, it's going to struggle to keep going. And so the essence of Christianity is knowing Jesus. That is the essence. That is primary. Paul would say in Philippians 3, he talked about, I, I call everything else, I count everything else as worthless. 
as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul was from the right school. He had the right background. He got straight A's. He knew all of the Greek, all of the Hebrew. The guy was probably a genius, really hardworking guy. He said all of that other stuff, that background, just counted as dung, you know, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So everything else in the Jesus-following life simply flows out of that, flows out of that love relationship. The Ephesian church you know, was extremely busy doing some really godly Godly stuff, but it is possible, uh, just like the Ephesians, to have all the knowledge and all the zeal and yet not know him. It's remarkable. The endurance of suffering, and some of us are suffering, the endurance of suffering becomes, becomes hard and bitter if it is not softened and sweetened by love. As for correct theology, it becomes cold and lifeless without the warmth and the beauty with which love, Christ's love, breathes into it. And let me just say as well that um, where, where there's a lack of love, you know, I believe that in a broken and a hurting world, our people, they can just they have a sixth sense for knowing when there is love present, when there is a lack of love. It doesn't matter their class or their education. People can just kind of taste and they know love when it's present. And so because people, they really don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, um, with a lack of love, it's just, it's really an ineffective faith. When we've lost our first love, we struggle, we suffer, but also those we seek to share with, uh, they're struggling and suffering too, or there's nothing we can give them to compensate for their suffering. So all head and no heart I mean, that just won't cut the mustard in a broken and hurting world. So to truly love people, it must be this natural outflow of a living, real, uh, kind of day-to-day -day faith with Jesus. This five home stretch, it says, consider how far you have fallen. Consider how far you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. If you did not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So it's a bit like when we can't find our car keys. And I might say, you know, when I was growing up to mum, I'd say, mum, I can't find my keys or my, my wallet. And sadly, you can't ring those items like you can your phone. So it's tricky. Mum would usually say, well, you know, where did you leave it? And that was the most annoying response because it's like, well, <laughs> if I knew that, <laughs> I wouldn't be asking you. But that's what's saying here. Jesus is saying, you know, return, go back to where you left it. You probably know where it is. Deep down, you probably know where it is and, and how to get there. Pondering how far we have fallen, pondering how far we have fallen, we would have to turn around and repent to go back to do those former works, which were simply an overflow and expression of love natural responses of showing adoration to Jesus. And so it's not about just choosing to conjure up or manufacture some sort of emotional response to God. It's not about just, uh, yeah, it really is an act of the will. It's a choice to say, look, I want to repent. I want to go back and do those things. I want to go back and find my first love. And I'm going to make that key. Everything else is secondary to that. I want to even stop some of this stuff I'm doing. I want to go back and find that. 
because only then can I be effective as a disciple. It's a bit like if you're married and, you know, your spouse comes home. Uh, your spouse says, look, I don't love you anymore. Um, but I share this example. I really hope no one's gone through this. It would be, um, it's, it'd be painful. So a spouse comes home and says, I really don't love you anymore, but I tell you what, I still want to live with you and I want to help raise our kids. Uh, I want to split the bills. I want to pay for some things. I might even kiss you every now and again just sort of in a routine way, but I don't love you anymore. And so what would our response to that be? It'd be, you know, God forbid, no way, that is, that's awful. There's no way I want to tolerate or be part of a relationship like that, unless there's love as the foundation. That's what our marriage is built on. That's what any sort of union uh, is built on. But, you know, for us as Christians, sometimes church can become a little bit uh, like that as well where we say to Jesus, look, I really don't love you as perhaps I once did, but I still want to keep coming along. I'm going to keep serving, but I don't love you. That's what it means, that verse about removing the lampstand. It's simply saying, it's not, it's not a salvation issue. It's not saying repent or you lose your relationship with God and eternal life with him. It's simply saying, I cannot tolerate and use you as a church to be effective uh, if you've lost your first love. Unless you're connected to the vine, connected to me, I can't use you. And you you drive throughout Perth, you'll see a lot of churches where things used to thrive and be alive, but now it's converted into a coffee shop or something. And uh, in some of those cases, I wonder if perhaps they lost their first love. So look, I just want to close with some practical tips. You know, if if uh, if we have perhaps lost some of that that first love, how do we return? How do we go back and, and get it? Uh, the first one I'd say, first idea, and uh, you can write some of these down. I'd like us maybe even just to choose one, which this week we will seek to uh, apply. So the first one, I think it's a bit left field, but it's go and engage, connect with some new Christians. Find some new Christians and uh, connect with them. Because new believers in Jesus, they're just awesome. You know, everything's fresh and dynamic and real. There's some spontaneity. They just kind of get it. They don't know John Piper. They probably don't care who John Piper is, but they just get it. And so one of the, um, the ways the Lord spoke, I guess, most clearly to me in the last couple of years was I was at the governor's prayer breakfast and so I don't know if anyone's been. Hands up who's been to the governor's prayer breakfast before. Cool, just a couple. Okay. And so it's this kind of royal regal affair. You know, the governor of Perth is there. It's a pretty spruced up or spiffy sort of affair. So I've got my best suit and tie on. And I'm there kind of taking selfies and wondering if I can, you know, get an Instagram shot with me and the governor because that would be at least 100 likes and that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> And I'm, I'm there, it's, uh, there's, all of a sudden, it's about 300, 400 people in the room. All of a sudden, uh, there's a hymn. Some school kids get up and they put on this hymn. And all of a sudden, there's, these, there's three tables of guys, three tables of men who just start, they stand up and arms outstretched, they just start praising God. As if the, the only people in the room is, are them and the Lord Jesus. And they're belting out this tune. Part of me, I'm looking at them thinking, 
like, who are these drongos? Don't they know their, their etiquette is to stay seated? And their clothing's not too flash either. It looks like they've just been to Kmart and I grab the, the cheap, loose-fitting pants, you know, for $9.90 kind of thing. So part of me's judging them. But another part of me's thinking, Lord, uh, I want what they have. Because I've been doing this thing for 10, 12 years, but these guys have got something I don't have. And what it was was their first love. Turns out uh, those men, they were involved with a ministry called Shalom House. And so if anyone knows Shalom House, they're, they're reformed drug addicts. And so some of those guys might have only been Christians for a week or for a few days. And all they know is that uh, where they might have a few weeks ago been facing death or homelessness or the greatest of travesties, now they're, they're reconciled to the living God. They've been given this free gift. There's nothing they can do to achieve it. They can only receive it and receive it they have. And they're there with their hands outstretched. And I thought, Lord, I want some of that. And so perhaps there's some people in your life, maybe they're checking out faith, maybe they're new Christians, but grace and mercy and from how far they have fallen, that is very fresh and new to them. And find those people. Be respectful, but find those people. Uh, Second little uh, challenge or idea, and that's just to uh, cultivate each day. Choose your first and last action each day. Uh, Design that to cultivate intimacy with God. And I like that one because it's specific. And so, uh, you know, what is the last thing you do before you go to bed? Could you choose to create a habit where you just say, Jesus, I love you and I'm loved by you. Uh, thanks, thanks for looking out for me today. And then when you rise up first thing in the morning, just as a first thing, it doesn't have to be long, it doesn't have to be religious, it doesn't have to be the same words again and again. It's not the Lord's Prayer or anything, but uh, to get up and to rise and say, Lord Jesus, I love you. I want to live today as your child. I want to love others through your strength. It all sounds simple enough, but then Steve Jobs comes along and he invents the iPhone and it sort of stuffs it up because it becomes really hard to finish each day and start each day without checking uh, the phone. I struggle with that as well. Look, thirdly, we're almost done here. Our third one as an option is just to speak it out. Just confess to someone, a friend, at a Bible study, guys, I think, uh, I think I've lost some of that first love. And that friend can offer counsel and they could offer to maybe put some more boundaries in your life or help you to say no to things. But often when we just speak it out, it's there, it's off our chest. The enemy can't taunt us about it anymore. Just speak it out. Just three things in closing. Engage with new believers. Maybe that's the challenge. Spend some time with new believers. For your first and last actions each day to cultivate intimacy with God. And then thirdly, maybe it's just a chance to confess. Confess to God, confess to someone else. Hey, I think I've lost some of that first love. God the Father loves the Son. He loves the Son. And the first thing, the chief thing that Jesus is asking for from His church, His people, is an authentic love relationship with Him. Do you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Jesus said that's the first and the greatest commandment. Let me pray for you, Oikos. 
Oh, Lord, thanks uh, for your word. Thanks for the book of Revelation. And we just, in faith, we say, yeah, it's got a lot to teach us, Lord. Father, for that letter there to the church at Ephesus, uh, we um, thank you for your encouragement, your commendation for those who are serving you, who are hanging in there, who are talking truth, who are calling out non-truth. There's some people doing the hard yards. No one knows about it but you. And I pray that... uh, People might be refreshed tonight to know that you see and you know their deeds. Yet you have something against some of us. You have something against us, and that's that we've uh, pulled away from our first love. We've left it somewhere. And Father, I pray that this week would be, for many people, a line in the sand. A line in the sand where they say, look, I, I don't want to just keep going through the motions anymore. I want to I want to go after that first love. I want to recover um, an intimate, a deep, a loving, uh, fruitful relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, with Jesus, the Saviour who died and uh, rose again to reconcile me with the Father. Amen.